are in the Grotto Pod. I am mm. in the Grotto Pod. Bridget's in the Grotto Pod. Right now, no one else is in the Grotto Pod, but we will soon be joined by a multi hyphenate. The type there's of so which many we of those haven't seen before because oh, we've had kind, yeah. writer, editor, stand-up comedian, right, uh, podcaster, musician. Have we ever had writer, stand-up, com- well, kind of stand-up comedian, comedic comedian guy, yeah. funny, uh, podcaster? City council candidate. What? Yeah. Twitter dude. Twitter king. King. I didn't mean to say dude. And speaking of king, King Neptune of the Seattle Seafair. Oh, yeah. King Our Neptune. Our guest uh, this week will be John Roderick in yeah. town for Litquake. BQ, how's Litquake going for you so far? I'm tired. It's good. Yeah. It's very good. There's been great things. I'm tired. I I need to cough, and you know why? Right, because the air is uh, 160%. <laughs> Smoke. Fire. Yeah. So everything's on fire. So I had an event last night. That not only was it on fire, but it was yeah. lacking one third of the participants. Is right. That so it was a panel on graphic books, which, in case you're interested, means books with pictures for adults. <laughs> comic books? <laughs> because it does mean comic books, because my book, uh, I did not illustrate myself, but has reproductions and some amazing drawings by Portland artist Lisa Congdon. But, um, Renata Sandal was there, who was freaking awesome, and hers were photographs, but the one person who's actually an illustrator, Marissa Moss... She could not come because of her asthma. Could not breathe. Can't breathe. you are a listener. When I say you, I'm speaking listener, not you, BQ. BQ. Mm -hmm. Uh, You, the listener, are listening to this from the vantage point of the future. Right. Hopefully we're still here. Liquid is over. Yep. Hopefully the fires are gone. Otherwise, we're in a world of hurt and you've got bigger things to worry about than this It's day after day going on. It's getting kind of Supposedly the scary. air is going to get worse over the next few days. How can it be I worse? actually close the windows, which for me is like a major Beth, never close windows. Producer Beth Weingartner yeah. came in today. I'm, like, I'm starting to laugh. This is bad. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't think she'll mind. She was wearing a mask. Oh. Um, has a mask with her, I should say. Um, but it's it's not... Like the kind of mask you see, like people. a surgeon wearing, is like a Hello it's Kitty mask. It's not like that. It's no. like the kind of mask you would use to maybe flush out deer. <laughs> okay, I can see that before I get out of here. Is not what you would expect Beth to wear. I mean, you wouldn't expect to see her in a mask, no matter what. You might you might? I know. I was like, well, I think we're sort a of like kind of gal. Yeah, I was thinking I could see her in like a Jason mask. Yeah, yeah, but not this mask. So that made me laugh. But anyway, it's not funny because she needs it. Right. <laughs> it's bad. So hopefully you're looking at this from uh, the point of uh, nice, clean air, yeah. and great Litquake experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let's talk about our guest. Okay, why not? Back to John. He's coming for Litquake. John Roderick is coming for Litquake. Actually, he's coming to uh, host the Poetry World Series tonight. That'll be awesome. And then come on our show after that. After that? I just screwed with time. Actually, That's he's like, coming on our show tomorrow, and we're in here today recording this. Oh, right. Okay. Right. So he's going on that tonight. Tomorrow, he'll come on our show. Yeah. Let me give you the bona fides of my boy, John Roderick. All right. Who I knew very long ago. This, As we, I said off mic, this completes the trifecta of guys Rosen used to know. I'm, I'm getting gr- them all in here. I'm grinning. Are you going to say how you knew him? I, <laughs> we were temps together. <laughs> they were temps. There's we a movie in that. We were temps at uh, Piper Jaffrey, a stockbrokerage oh, firm. We worked in the cage that. together. What's the cage? Uh, you know, Sounds I so naughty. Really remember? I just remember there was an old man in there who, every time he answered the phone, he I wouldn't hear the other side. I assume they said, "How are you doing?" And he would say, "A whole lot better since you got on the horn." Oh, every single time, several times a day. I think we actually there was money 
actually changing hands. They had these two ridiculous, yeah. uh, ambition-free temps working there. But since then, so we were all, you know, John has gone on to do some really interesting things, uh, some of which can be uh, sort of covered on the umbrella of writing. Oh, he good. does have a book called Electric Aphorisms uh, based on his Twitter feed, which has a buttload of followers. Yeah, check it out. And that's also a good title. Uh, he has written for the Seattle Weekly, The Stranger, Rolling Stone, and CMJ magazines covering Ooh. music. So that's the reveal. He's a musician. Uh, years ago, he would beg me to write about his bands. Okay, beg might be a little strong. Mm. Finally, he puts together a band uh, called The Long Winners. Actually, I had seen him in a band before, and... Honestly, I got to tell you, blown away. Oh, good! Really, really shocked. Like, whoa! I had I thought this was my goofy. Especially someone who is a music writer, than being in a band, that would make me nervous. I but think it was band first. Oh, got music it. Music writer, got second. it. Okay. Uh, the Long Winners put out three albums mm-hmm. um, that are fantastic. Really, I, I beg you to go buy those albums, or just stream them, or listen to them. However, one does it these days. The However, kids. the kids do the albums mm-hmm. these days. Uh, but from that, you know. I may be a little distracted. We'll get it from him, but it's gone on to a lot of different things. Uh, sort of put his toe in all kinds of waters. Has played for other bands, including Death Cab for Cutie and Not a Surf. Uh, has collaborated with lots of people, Kathleen Edwards, Jonathan Colton. He's got three podcasts. How is that possible? Uh, actually, two right now. One that's coming. Roderick on the Line with Merlin Mann, who is a local, yeah. actually. Yeah. Uh, Roadwork with Dan Benjamin. And one that's coming together, I don't know if it's out, you will have to ask him, called Omnibus with Ken Jennings. You know who Ken Jennings is? Sounds familiar. the guy who won all the money on Jeopardy. Oh, yeah. There's yeah, a new friends. guy on Jeopardy. I know. I heard Whoa. he's crazy. He's a bartender. So nutty. Uh, what else is John that I have under other? Uh, he did run for city council in 2015. And, and it was oh, serious. So he did he win? screwing around. No, I came in second. Oh. Uh, he put in, a, you know, that is the one and only political contribution I've made in my life. You put money campaign, in that? Yeah. Really? Oh, wow. That's a friend. <laughs> I know. But, uh, yeah, I, I know. I mean, I knew the guy. Uh, let's see. Host of Hey Seattle, 59 Travel Videos. Uh, host of Roderick's Rendezvous, which was a live show that also became a podcast. He has a good name for these things. Like it Roderick on the very, Line sounds very, really good. Uh, upstanding. Oh, the Rosen sounds good. Rosen on the name. Line. Yeah. Uh, I Hello, just want to see the back of a football jersey. And you can if you're a UCLA fan. I just watched that a couple weekends ago. And most recently, uh, Seattle has a giant festival each summer called Seafair, which culminates in hydroplane racing on Lake Washington. And John was <laughs> King Neptune this year. He wore a crown. And let me, we'll talk to him about it. He took it very, very seriously. Oh, it sounds like he must take all these things seriously because he does them to an extreme thoroughness. He doesn't do things halfway, but I think with John, the thing I want to kind of get to is the idea of the writer inside of all this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, I know it's there, and I know uh, I, he, he is a man of letters. Yeah. And uh, but, he but he but, but you're not saying he does these things like George Plimpton like Plimpton like. No, he's not to, a dilettante. Yeah. Uh, he, so he, these are the real things. Plus well, writing, not doing them for something to write about. What's interesting is I think he started as a writer, musician. Yeah, as people do. And he became a personality. The force yeah. of his personality yeah. sort of superseded all this other stuff. He's still doing the other stuff, but it's his personality that people that he's made. He's been able to parlay into a career. Right. So we're going to get to that. Uh, we've gone on for quite a while. Okay. Which is shocking for two people who are as smoke-choked as us. I know. I can barely talk. In fact, I was just thinking, not only am I not going to get John right now because it's not till tomorrow, <laughs> but I hope we can crawl back in here tomorrow. It's This is crazy. Yeah, yeah. This is so, madness. Uh, if, if all that's posted is this intro, You'll know. check the papers because something might have happened. 
Yeah. Oh my God, Larry, what if we passed out in here and I'm right in front of the door you know, and nobody ever found us? I think uniquely, considering for the 37, however many episodes we've done, this is the first time the air in the grotto pod is safer than the air outside. I know that might be true, but it is still hard to breathe. It is. Yeah. It's like Laura Frazier was having terrible problems breathing in her office. Mm. And she said, I came in, I said, you can go work in my office because I was coming in here. And she said, oh, I put this thing over the window and I think it's blocking the air because she can't close her window. I might have to go get myself a little uh, anime cosplay face. Totally. But you know what she put over her window? What? (laughs) A curtain. I was like, oh, that's a curtain. (laughs) (laughs) That's not a filter. It's a curtain. All right. We've gone on long enough. Oh, all right. Let's pretend like we're going to get John when actually we're going to get him tomorrow. So uh, check back in four beats. Okay. Uh, John Roderick, welcome to the Grotto Pod. Oh, wow. Thank you so much. It really is a grotto here. Yeah. And pod-like. You know, calling it a grotto, because... We already did our intro, and we listed your many accomplishments, mm-hmm. and I revealed that we knew each other quite well many years ago. We did. We were in the cage together at Piper Jaffrey. I had the cage. And Sounds I thought, kind of John Roderick's going to get here, and he's going to say the grotto. And in your mind, you're going to picture the Playboy Mansion. Uh-huh. But it made me think of something. How lucky is Hugh Hefner that he died a month before? Before what? Harvey Weinstein. Oh, before Harvey Weinstein. Ah, that guy could have, he could have survived anything. He would have been a very unhappy old man. Uh, you know, he, oh, he's he doesn't give a proof, shit. right? Yeah. Nobody, no, I mean, there's no story you could hear about him that you wouldn't think twice as bad. Yeah, he would just have kept, you know, injecting the blood of virgins and doing whatever it is he did to live as long as he did. Oh, Hugh. So, listeners, we have a kind of a, an unusual setup here today uh, due to familial obligations. Bridget will be bugging out in a half hour, leaving yeah. John and I alone. You'll be okay. Oh, They've been in the cage before. Eek. Which will give one-third more air. Which but yeah, be. you know, John got here and said, wow, there's no air in here. And that, and I said, that's a good thing. Hmm. Well, because the, the region is on fire. Correct. Do you have your Outside G95 air. mask? Me? No. G95 mask. The, uh, earlier this summer, all of British Columbia was Correct. on fire. Correct. And Montana. But that was all <clears throat> like pine trees in the forest exploding. Mm-hmm. And so in Seattle, it really smelled like a campfire. That uh, there was, nice. There was this much smoke in the air, but it was like, it smelled like burning wood. Was it dangerous? It was just as, yeah, just as this bad, just as unhealthy to have that much smoke in the air. You couldn't see, uh, you, normally you'd have these beautiful vistas. You couldn't see anything. It was just same like burning campfire sun at, at, at See, and, and I was te- I've been telling everyone, when I woke up in the middle of the night on Sunday and smelled the smoke, it took a few minutes to register because it's such a pleasant smell. Yeah. It's like, oh, great. Ah, campfire. And then, wait a minute, it's my house on fire. Well, and now uh, the campfire smell is a lot less and you just smell just like gross. the burned dreams of uh, yes. 10,000 people. So well it's said. There yeah. is, there is a. I don't want to say burning bodies. It's not a smell like that. But there is an edge to the smell that is very sad. I flew over it coming down from Seattle, and the, you know that is an enormous valley. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and an enormous and beautiful and oh, and, and, you got, ooh. and you could and as we were flying, you just uh, we saw the first fires, mm-hmm. and everybody on the plane kind of went over to that side and looking down, like, oh, wow, look at it, because you know they're still enormous fires. Yeah, they're still right now. They are right on that yeah. rim of of mountains that that begins that that whole valley. And, and if it wasn't for Napa, the city, it would be one big fire. 
Because there's a fire to the east of Napa and there's a fire to the west of Napa. Oh, really? Because the, the, it's moving, quickly moving west. It's brutal. That's, but it, the entire valley is shrouded in smoke. You couldn't see, you couldn't see down into yeah. it. It just looked like a cauldron. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's crazy. We flew over there recently on my lovely trip to Orcas Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did take note, believe it or not, Long. I did take note that it's such a well-defined valley. Mm-hmm. Napa, you can, wow, it really is a valley. Anyhow, we digress. Uh, As we do. So during our intro, uh, we mentioned that you are here for Litquake. I guess I'll start. How'd that go last night? Uh, was, it, was it everything you had hoped it would be? So a long time ago, uh, I sort of as a, as a creative and, and just business lifestyle decision, I decided to start thinking of the West Coast as a contiguous neighborhood. Because if you, if you live in Seattle and you or you live in San Francisco and you think of that as your whole uh, milieu, then you're 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 not going to expose yourself. You're not going to be part of the larger West Coast conversation. So I decided, first of all, that Portland, Oregon was just going to. I was going to think of it as a suburb of Seattle. It was an hour and a half drive. I was just going. They love that. And you know, like a lesser <laughs> suburb, like a smaller, no, I get it, dude. Yeah. shittier, like dumber Seattle, suburb right. of Seattle. Yeah, got it. Noted. Which it's all, which it's always been, and always will. Yeah, but you know, you get it. Somebody would say, "Hey, we're, Portland, we're doing a show. Uh, come down," and I would hop in my car and go. Mm-hmm. San Francisco, it turns out, is an hour and a half flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm back and forth all the time. And about five or six years ago, they said, "Come down to Lidquake, MC the World Series of Poetry." And I said, everything about that sounds exactly like the type of thing I would say yes to. So, yes. <laughs> Obscure. <laughs> and it doesn't – it obviously doesn't pay. Just it's right in the – it's right in the title. Yeah. World Series of Poetry. Poetry. You know Free. that whatever your honorarium is is going to be like a – you know, it's a gift bag. Yeah. Work for free. Right. A work yeah. for free. Or it's a gift bag full of poetry. Oh, Which is awesome. <laughs> Which is sometimes traded for – you know, what? baubles, I guess. Yeah, Manhattan <laughs> Island, right? That's yeah. how they bought Manhattan Island. Right. $26 worth of poetry. But over the years, I've stopped doing every kind of like, hey, we're opening an envelope. Like, oh, I'll be there. Because it just does, it never, it doesn't pencil out. And I have to, I had to at a certain point start being choosier about what I said. And I already was only saying yes to things that seemed cool and fun. But then those cool and fun things were where they're paying you in. Fun, yeah. Not, I couldn't keep doing them. Yeah, all. but yeah. I'm somehow grandfathered into the World Series of Poetry, and I keep flying. Dude, down it's here the to do World it. Series. I know, I know. So I get it, and it's very fun. It really is. I mean, to have a live event where people turn up to cool. listen to poetry. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And and 25 years ago, there were a lot more of that kind of event mm-hmm. because, as members of Generation X, that was. Kind oh. of the 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 best we aspired to. Oh, Poetry Slam was everything, right? Yeah, that was everything. And then things were st- it was still cheap to yeah. to have five people live in a warehouse and hey, we're having people over to read this play and like there was a lot that was a bigger part of our culture and the fact that it still exists in it's, a city like this is great. It was kind of weird that it was a bigger part of our culture then because I keep thinking that technology should make that stuff easier rather than harder, but there definitely was more of kind of a Mickey Rooney let's put on a show type of thing going sure. on back then. There seemed to be fewer ba- fewer uh, boundaries rather than more. Um, I just want to note that when John arrived, he was wearing an orange sport coat and a tie. Now, no sport coat, three <clears throat> buttons undone, no tie 
he may be naked by the time we're done. You know, like I well, like to get comfortable. Help. Yeah, get comfortable. Well, this is yeah. not the place. <laughs> may I just say? The thing is, walking around this neighborhood in San Francisco where it's very much... Um, Youthful? It's very young, and so people young. are clearly working in offices, but mm-hmm. they are... They're dressing and comporting themselves as though they are at a fraternity mixer. Or tech, we call them tech bros. Tech bros. Yeah. Uh, and and so wearing a blazer and a tie. Mm, I gotcha. It's like, ironic. In a, well, in a way. I gotcha. In yeah. a way, it seems like the only people that wear ties now are employees. Yeah. And the startup dudes are all wearing $1,100 T-shirts. <laughs> but walking around down there, like what I'm communicating to them is I am your dad. Like yeah. I am in every way yeah. your dad. Yeah. And because this is San Francisco, I also might be your daddy. Yeah. So bend over because here it comes. Ooh. Yeah, they're getting racy on the grotto pot. Um, that makes Larry who, nervous. Who is your audience here? I mean, it's not well, it's I, not uh, elementary school kids. I'm glad you say well, this because hmm. uh, this brings up sort of my hidden agenda here, which is <laughs> uh, the grotto pod colon. Writers on writing. Oh, it's about uh, writing. Oh, great. Oh, you oh, step through that door. You're a writer, and I and, and oh. Bridget had said. I said, let's get John down. He's coming down for the quake, you know. Uh, I, I does a ton of it. stuff. She yeah. said, is he a writer? I said, well, he's got a book. But I would say, are you a writer? Do you consider yourself a writer? Have you considered yourself a writer? And it flashed in my head years ago, uh, you walked across Europe. And I think I remember it was supposed to be a memoir. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so this question to you then, I mean, you do so much different stuff. We outlined it all in the intro. I don't want to go over it again because I'll have to pick up my notes and it's a very small room. I understand. Mm. I'll drop them. Um, and there's also, uh, you could make the argument at this point, at some point, your job has become being you. Yeah. But do you consider yourself a writer? Yes, I do. And, and um, you know, I had, a, I had a column for the Seattle Weekly for several years. I just secured... Uh, or I just rather signed a contract with a book agent in New York City. That makes you a writer for sure. Yeah, I think York that makes agent. you more of a writer yeah. than me. Yeah. And I am writing a, um, I don't, I forget what the term he used, but a sort book? of, uh, well, no, I've written that, but oh. a prospectus or oh, a, oh, a proposal. proposal. Welcome um, to hell, my Thank friend. you. It's terrible. Yes. And uh, the other night I woke up in the middle of the night and I was like, all of the words that I chose to use in the proposal are the wrong words. And I went through and I took every sort of... Everything that I, when I was writing it, everything that I thought was funny and charming, I just took it all out. So let's break that down a little bit. You get presented with this opportunity and they say, write us a proposal. You're so green, you think it's called a prospectus for all the stuff you've done. (laughs) Right. What do you, would you Google it? Because I've tried to write a proposal before. Unfortunately, we're here in this community where you can send out an email and 10 people go, here's my proposal. Yes. Check this out. So what did you do? So I said to my agent... Which that's a very fun. Thing that's to awesome. Say. Yeah. Best. For years, I've had a book a booking agent for yeah. my band. Yeah, but, but for now someone I, whose mom was his manager. Yeah, and still is <laughs> uh, my business manager. My you know my business partner. I love that you're smiling when you say that. I love my mom, that's and she, awesome. she has helped me in every aspect of my career. And it's Great. wonderful to have somebody that you can yeah. just say like, "Mom, but like I, I'm I'm working on a new podcast with Ken Jennings." Uh, the uh, the Jeopardy champion. Omnibus? Uh, Omnibus is the podcast. And his dad is a retired contract lawyer. Mm. Excellent. So we keep getting these contracts, and, and, and we just have this, like, 24-hour turnaround where they come back, like, crazy. totally redlined and perfect. And it's just like, how, how well? And my mom was a very organized, uh, you know, executive, and she helps me a lot. But I, I went to my agent, and I said, I don't know what this thing, this proposal is. I don't know what it should be. 
why don't you write it, and then I'll edit it. <laughs> the and sound, my brain is going to... Yeah, the sound you hear right now are our listeners gnashing their teeth. <laughs> and so he did. He wrote my book proposal. Boy. And then I wow. was like, well, that's not what I would have said. Right. And so then I went through and, oh, good. and changed it, and then changed it again, because editing is fun. And sitting down with a blank page and just like, hello, world. I really feel the opposite. Oh, you don't like editing? Oh, no, I like writing. Oh, editing for me is like the, that's the real joy because, because I go through, I comb it. I think it's br- I think it's brilliant. Of course, yeah. I put it down. Right, you're like open- nothing to change. Right, I open it yeah. three days later. I'm like, this is terrible, but it's just always combing. And for me, it's always just like throw everything in and then take eighty percent out, and what's left, it's like gold panning. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's that's the only way I know how to write either. But it just depends what's happening. Whether I hate writing or editing. I yeah, mean, I can hate them both. I, but I can love them both. If you're like in that hot mood where you sit down yeah. and your your fingers are just on the keys, yeah. like hello, like, I'm God. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I like that. I mean, it's not always. You might feel you're God. It may turn out you're not in the end. Yeah. Oh, always, hundred percent. But editing out. other people's stuff, nightmare. Oh, I love that oh, more I than anything. It. Other people's stuff. I mean, as long as that person is competent, can hear it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and competent enough that you're not like. Right. I have to start. I have to rewrite this completely. Like right. that, that's not fun. No, that's the worst. Anyhow, back to your proposal. But yeah, so I do consider myself a writer, and always did. Uh, and always aspired to be a writer, even more than being a rock musician. Mm-hmm. I think I, I I stumbled into being a musician because I because it was so uh, the process of being a writer was so obtuse. Like I could not see my path into mm-hmm. being a writer, uh, and the path to being a musician seemed much more like oh, you can just do that. And was any of that due to just surroundings? And yeah, we were in Seattle. It was nineteen ninety one, ninety two. There was a lot of opportunity to be a young writer there, but the thing about being a writer was that the proof was right there in the, I mean, you wrote it and you handed it to somebody Mm -hmm. and they either liked it or they didn't. It was, there wasn't a performance aspect. You couldn't claim that you were kidding or you couldn't claim that you were just like, woo, or you couldn't make a lot of noise and uh, smoke and mirrors. It had to just be like there. And also, I think we talked about this once when I went to see you play solo. The amount of immediate gratification, audience gratification and feedback you can get as a musician versus as a writer is off the charts. I mean, I could I could write something and have a thousand people read it, and I have no idea what they think. You can right. play in front of a thousand people, and they are hanging on your every word. I have I have like we all do uh, a Yoda high stack of spiral bound notebooks that I filled with uh, practicing. But I didn't think it was practicing at the time. I thought it was right. my magnum opus. Right. <laughs> and when you read it back, you're like, this is all garbage. It's pure garbage. But it was just – it was it was getting it flowing. And I think um, that the, the truism is that we all develop our ability to tell good from bad a lot uh, earlier than we develop an ability to make good things. So I could read it and know that it was terrible. I, my critical faculty was already present. I didn't know how to make it good. And that was – and with guitar, I knew I was a terrible guitar player. 
but in 1992 in Seattle, that was did really, not matter. It was an advantage, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I don't, I'm not into your whole like knowing how to play thing, <laughs> play the right notes. But with writing, right, I always felt like I was competing with Philip Roth. There was a, I, I, in music, I never thought like, oh, I have to be as good as right Jimmy Page. Well, it was, and you know, more about that time and that that place, uh, Seattle in the early 90s. There was, there was a lot of that Mickey Rooney. Let's let's put on a show type sure. of thing. And if you were hanging around, you were you were more likely to be hanging around with musicians than writers. So it was, or there, there were a lot of playwrights, but but also it was an alternative theater scene. So right. a lot of the playwrights were just like up there talking about how they felt abused, you know, by the bus driver that day. Well, they were because the bus drivers were bad. I can speak of that first. Bad human but beings. The Stranger, which right. was our local alternative right. paper, which I wrote for, and it had an in, in those early days an incredible run of great, great writing. They did. Uh, Didn't Charles D'Ambrosio write yes, them? Absolutely. And I mean, his essays are world class. And they started there. Yeah. And so you'd open up this weekly paper, and yeah. you'd read these things that were just like, well, that's in, that's incredible journalism and awesome. incredible. Writing, right, and just like, well, I and guess some guy you may have just seen around, yeah, yeah. And my whole That's thing helpful. of like, I was sitting in a bar the other day, and then, and I was the coolest guy there, but no one else knew it. <laughs> like, you're not going to get that in, and it feels like, well, why? Yeah, that maybe this isn't where I go. And that that publication immediately, in my eyes at least, because I was kicking around writing for everyone, but that publication was like, oh, you want to get in the stream, yeah, yeah, yeah. you so, want to be part of that. Isn't it interesting that, because with music you feel like, okay, everyone can hear when it's right, and you think of things like writing as being a little different, like maybe it's about taste, or do people really get it, but actually, good writing, everyone gets it. Yeah. They get it. Yeah. yeah. And you can tell when someone is just Sturm und Drang. Yeah. Whereas in music... Sturm und Drang? What? That's what I meant. Sturm und Drang. That's the story. Is that how you say it? Well, that's like all Germany. That's how you say it in yeah. German. I, as I said, I do have Germans living on my street. That's about as far as it goes. <laughs> Are they Nazis? I mean, you've had a pretzel. No, in they're your not. Okay. I've had a fine pretzel, yes. Yeah. All right, sorry. But, but, uh, but in music, there's all that happy accident where it's like, I mean, there were bands in Seattle at the time where one of the instruments was a chainsaw, where um, a guy just got up there and, rah, 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 and it's like, oh, and it was like, yes, yeah, so good. <laughs> well, it was such an arch scene. Yeah, know. yeah, it really was. And so I felt much more, and because I'm also naturally a performer, right? I wanted to get up and be like, wow, look at me. And again, that's much harder to do when you're sitting in. There's always been kind of, I feel like yeah. there's always been a sense really of hard. performance art to the stuff you're doing. you do. I was telling Bridget about seeing you at the WTO riots. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I said, there was John dressed as a Secret Service guy. And I went and said, John, what are you doing? He said, I can't talk now. He said, oh, is he security? I said, no, he's pretending to be security. Yeah. And I loved that. Yeah, well, and, and the great thing about that was for, for three days, I walked around with two other friends dressed. With like a little thing in your ear? We had, the, we had working yeah. radios where we oh, could hear all the radio traffic of both the organized protesters and the police. We had mirrored sunglasses. We had uh, CIA wigs, you know, like like, and three piece suits. And you had gone mustache. I had gone mustache. Were you afraid of someone killing you? Well, so here's the thing: like the protesters largely didn't get it because it was it was an irony free zone. I was just going to say that is why. Yeah. Even though we looked like the Beastie Boys in uh, sabotage sabotage video, (laughs) it seemed to them the the vast majority of the Save the Whalers that were there. That's what they still thought CIA. I was going to say, that's what they look like. And whatever you've heard about those protests, 
That is exactly what they needed. Oh, I have no doubt. And the cops also in Seattle are totally irony-free people. Like, they just, they, I I think a lot of them probably thought we were FBI. (laughs) But what? I love in, in the middle of one of these events where I and my friends were standing around in massive, massive crowds and smoke in the air. Insane. You were there? No, no. Oh. I, I said I would be scared. It was insane. Yeah. And and uh, and from intersection to intersection, like you'd you'd be on a street and all of a sudden you'd turn the corner and there would be a line of police, horses, people chained yeah. to each other. That's, yeah. Like. Yeah. Uh, dumpsters on fire, and we had it on on our radios, right? So, so you would hear the protesters say like, "We're moving to Sixth and Pine," and then you'd hear the you'd switch channels, and the cops would be like, "It's happening at Sixth and Pine." Like, you, we'd follow it. Could you record any of this? Well, no. Like, how it was, was it documented? It was, it was before. It would be a YouTube video now. It, yeah, but it was so before. Good. I remember a guy running past us with a laptop in a sling. Oh, right. And it was connected to another guy that had a camera. And like, they're running together. And they're like running together. <laughs> And I was like, that's the weirdest thing I ever saw. But it was 99, right? Or two, yeah, it was 99. It, yeah. it was right before we left. So I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have... Right. Which it, actually, I think, makes it better because now it's a legend. Well, so so there was this moment where I'm standing in the street and I've got my hand on my fake earpiece <laughs> and I'm talking to my friends like, uh, Roger, uh, let's move to the northeast corner and scoop the... And, you know, and everybody's like... Eyeballing us, and and like, we were having a great time. Every once in a while, we would break into a, like a little coordinated, momentary coordinated dance routine, and then we would yeah. move on. But I, I'm just kind of scoping the street, and I turn, and he, here's a guy my age in a completely anonymous car coat that looks like it's from LL Bean, uh, pleated dockers, comfortable shoes, normal haircut, and he's standing in the middle of, of this milling crowd and he's looking at me and I turn and we lock eyes and a cold chill goes over me because I realize he is an he's, FBI agent oh. and he's looking at me and that's what they actually wear is dockers <laughs> dockers that's brilliant of course they evil do evil genius and he's looking at me with a look that says nice <laughs> nice that's real. That's real. Way cute. to make my job harder. Yeah, that's real cute. And I'm like, hi. Uh, I wish you could see his face right. Now. I have this look on my face, like, hi. Uh, Just joking. I hope this is cool. And and but also on the, the look on his face is like, um, you know, like it's all there happening between us. Like, it's also. Like I'm cosplaying a version of him that he thinks is kind of an insult or like a little bit of a like, you're making us look like creeps and we're not. We're just normal car coat guys. It's all happening. Yeah. But also like. It's unspoken. It's so meta. Also, we're watching you. Like we see you. Yeah. And I, and I go to my earpiece and I'm like, guys, 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 look. Look Look over here. And I turn, and I turn around, and he has done that. Exactly what you would expect. He's gone. Melted. Poof. He's gone. He's gone, and I cannot find him He, like, reversed his car coat and became a woman. Because, because the car coat was the same color as the <sighs> concrete, and the shoes were the same color as the fire hydrants. He just turned into wow. city dust. You amateur. And I, and, and I still, I, when, I te- when I tell the story, I still am just like, I'm not a conspiracy-minded person, but that idea of, like, he just, he, if he didn't want me to see him, I wouldn't have. So he stepped out of his cloud, stopped, and... Sent his message. Took that moment, like, hello. And then 
back into the smoke. <laughs> wow. Well, we've come to the part of the podcast where Bridget has oh, to leave. So sad. Yes. You didn't even get to hear temp stories or anything. I, you guys talk about being temps because I like that part. Um, I'm going to leave my hippie mints with Larry. Sweet. Oh, does and that mean they have marijuana in them? No, oh, they're just okay. green. Oh, yeah, I'll have Look some. at them. No, check these out. They're not white. Oh. I have a real problem are with this shit. Are you sure those aren't full of marijuana? Maybe they are. They're no. quite enjoyable. I, that's that why I keep saying they taste like candy, I think. So we're going to, this is going to be totally different. I'm going to throw a little music in here. Can I throw one of your songs in here while yeah. we take our break? Let's, Go ahead. I'll do that for a little bit. Okay. Uh, of I'm, course, in post I'm so sorry to miss We'll this. open the it's door so and get some air in here. Yeah. And uh, Bridget will go. Okay. So, uh, Bye. hey, Bridget. Yeah. Read, write, and just keep working. Okay, we'll do. Famous Bridget Quinn, very busy woman. I know she's, she's wonderful. I wish that she could have. Yeah, stayed. I wish she could have had more time to hang out. She is a uh, best-selling in her field art history book. Oh, I have so many questions for her yeah. that I now have to save. And listeners, I uh, hope you were there. We are we are actually hosting our own lit crawl event or lit lit crawl mm-hmm. tomorrow night, which is the part big, of lit uh, quake, lit quake, kind of a pub crawl. So I wanted to talk about. We started talking a little about this book that you've been contracted to write. So mm-hmm. what? So after all the stuff you've done, and 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 as I sort of alluded to, you're kind of in the business of you. Uh, you're a big enough personality and you're enough of a performance artist that people want you. Like, you, you got flown down here just basically to be you. They trust you. By the way, did you prepare for that or you just show up? No, no, no. You can't prepare for things. <sighs> I've learned. Awesome. <laughs> the less you prepare, the better. Uh, so what did they contact you? When they contact you, so we want a book out of you. What is that book? Well, so and this is one of the questions about am I a writer that is um, – that is, is kind of always evolving for me because I started podcasting about six years ago, which even then, that uh, those weren't the early days of podcasting. Right, it was for a few years in. Let's have a meta discussion about podcasting on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, it was early enough in podcasting that I'm, you know, uh, not like uh, thought of as like a pioneer, but... Certainly, but I was doing it before. You got a ton to try. That podcast is Roderick on the line. He does it with Merlin Mann. It was the first podcast that you did. Now you have two and a third coming. Yeah, I have two and two coming. Actually, oh. four podcasts. That's a lot of time. By the end of the uh, by the end of the. Uh, but your year. podcast responsibility is different than mine. You just show up. So for two of them, I have no. I have literally. Uh, Unprepare, like I, I, I right. the phone rings, I pick up, and and I try to have my mind be as blank as possible because it's completely extemporized. And you guys started, you and Merlin started Roderick on the line. He had interviewed you 
Uh, it was a kind of the, kind of the deal, kind of like when Eric and I started. Is it good for the Jews? We had lunch and said, "Boy, we could talk about anything for hours." Well, I, I used to make that mistake with friends a lot. Sean Nelson of Harvey Danger and I used to meet for dinner, and we would just have these conversations. Oh, I wish somebody should be taping us. Yeah, we're so brilliant. And then we brought a tape recorder, a cassette tape recorder, to record our conversations, and it was an incredibly inhibiting presence. And we weren't able to. Oh, really? We weren't able to to do what we had done, which was have this convivial and wide-ranging, like, revealing, but also sort of middle-brow intellectual survey conversation that that had been our thing, that we just really enjoy. It's so wonderful to be with someone who gets your references mm-hmm. without explanatory text. Uh, I used to call them the seven people in the world. The seven people, and yeah. and and if you have even if you have even two that you can that you can rapid fire with, right? And they don't go, huh? They're not like what? And, and, and that's you know that's what's wonderful about I think uh, 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 to make another generational observation, like Generation X maybe was the last one that had a, a collective culture. Where, where we all more or less – if you met somebody that had never seen Three's Company, it was a surprise. <laughs> and your question was, were you homeschooled? Right. It wasn't fractured. There weren't eight billion choices. Yeah. You had to watch Three's Company. Three's Company was what was on. Or, yep. you know, if, you ha- if you didn't see Happy Days, it was that your parents believed in Jesus enough to keep you in a box. <laughs> and everyone else had seen all the same stuff. And now I don't think that that's true. If you, you I mean, it couldn't be. I mean, the, be. the amount of people that watch or or not even watch, but are exposed to things now, it's a fraction. You know, they when they canceled, I forget. There was I saw the numbers. It was some show like from the seventies that canceled for only having a million viewers, yeah. like the lowest rated show. To be now, I mean, I don't think girls ever had a million viewers. No, I mean, there are seventeen kinds of Norwegian black metal now. <laughs> Where so it's I've like heard, I'm only I'm only into this kind of Norwegian black metal, not that kind of Norwegian black metal. Which is great because we can define ourselves in very right. specific lines. But ha- having that relationship with with Sean uh, and not successfully being able to record it or document it, when Mer- Merlin and I had a similar thing, he would call me on the phone and he would say, "Have you ever really listened?" to Ringo Starr's drumming on A Hard Day's Night. And it's like, yes, I have. No, 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 I don't think you have. No, I really have. You know, And we would sit and bicker, and then pretty soon we'd be talking about Hitler because everything leads to talking about Hitler. Godwin's Law. And so he said, I'm going to start recording our conversations. And I said, the less I know, the better. Like, call me, talk to me. But I don't want to know. I don't even know what a podcast is, and I don't want to know. Yeah, you were sort of like the savant, like, you, you're not actually in the same room. Mm-mm. He but calls me. As you may have found out since then, doing a podcast, having this kind of conversation, it requires some wrangling to get two people in the same room. Not even that. To get the conversation not to sound like two people who don't have a thread in their conversation. Uh, it requires wrangling unless it's unless that's the premise. Right, that is your premise. Yeah. But I, I found like on, on my podcast, I do a ton of wrangling, and I can feel it. You know, especially we have writers in here who. Uh, yeah, they want to, they, everyone gets on a podcast. They want to be like you guys. Yeah. They want to, let's talk about, you know. It requires a couple of soul things. train for a half hour. One of them is that I always remember what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And that is Callbacks. really, it's very hard for people, I think, when they get in front of a microphone, 
They get excited, and then it's hard to remember what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. But I can always bring it back. Merlin can't. He actually writes stuff down on cards. I've heard about the cards. And he never brings it back. He never once brings it back. <laughs> but see, even like right now, I've got, I know where I want to get you. Right. Um, Whether I get you there or not. We'll get there. Yeah. Merlin's a San Franciscan and was a, was a very kind of like early sort of tech pundit. Not early tech pundit, like he wasn't commenting on on the debut of the Apple II, but like San Francisco era. He would have had to have been a boy genius to do that. Yeah, and he was. Yeah. But, but he has a polymathic intelligence, right? So it, it kind of breaks my heart that I don't know because I think the, the attraction of your podcast is you want to be the third guy in the room. And that is the that is the attraction of most. I think. I think mm-hmm. in most cases, people who listen to podcasts are people who do not feel they have those seven friends anymore or access to those seven friends. They may have known somebody in college or in high school that they had a real bond with, but that person has moved on in life. They work in a place where they feel somewhat cubicle isolated, or they're around the water cooler, but most of the people there don't share their variety of interests. And they don't feel like they have peers uh, that they have that they have regular access to. So these kids want fifty year old peers. So they listen and they feel like I mean I never had a, an older mentor mm-hmm. and I always wished for one. Uh, I wished for a fifty year old guy who would say, "Listen, I tried everything, and this is the only thing that'll get your dishes clean." <laughs> um, and in you know because I was one of those people that was like, "Well, that's the road to the town." Why don't I go 50 feet off the road and slog through the musk? I hear you. So, Still looking for my duck, by the way. Yeah, you got to find your duck. <laughs> got to right. find that duck. But, but in answer to your question about writing, it's is podcasting writing mm. is, is something that I really wrestle with because I tried for a long time uh, to get voice recognition software to work so that I could sit in front of a microphone and tell the stories that I tell and have those end up typed. Like David Milch. That's what he does. And I think that's uh, that's not uncommon. You could sit and have someone take dictation. Right. And and I've always said, you know, if you want to find your authentic voice, just listen to how you talk. Right. And I I spent years trying to find my writer's voice and did. I feel like I found in in my fingers the ability to type in my own lexicon. Okay. So when you're approached to write something now, what do they want? Um, Because, you know, so much of your your profile is built on talking. Right. And and I think that there's – I think when I'm when I'm approached to write something, it's usually a newspaper or magazine article, and it usually is around music. Mm-hmm. And I always feel sort of uh, that that is a very limiting uh, space for me. And actually, if I can interrupt, just to point out for viewers, I think we downplayed uh, your ba- your life in music during our intro. And I don't want to sell it short. The Long Winters put out three albums? Four. Four. Well, three and a long EP. Uh-huh. And I was in Harvey Danger before that. You were in Harvey Danger. You did stuff with a bunch of other And you showed up in, in a Decemberist video, which kind of freaked me out when I saw it. Yep. Um, but I would say universally critically acclaimed. 
But but indie rock, and so never lifted above the level of um, of a small dental practice, right? Right, like right. that. Never never became a band that employed fifty people. We employed eight people. You employed eight people, but then like you'd suddenly find out that you're Ryan Gosling's favorite band or something like that. Yeah, but we never like. Like our music was used, like one of our songs was used on the OC. Um, I know that astronauts have heard our music and it's been played in the space That's station. That's right, yeah. I know that, I mean, I find things, I, I walked into a, a studio today where they make the show Tested, and uh, which is an internet show, um, kind of myth, Mythbusters adjacent. I was going to say. And one of the hosts was like, oh my God, it's you. Like, there's a little bit of that. We were really big in Spain. <laughs> that's, that's a trope. <laughs> but not uh, but not so much that yeah. anyone ever hassles me. That's my dream, by the way. I walk in somewhere and someone goes, oh, I know who you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be nice. It's nice. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times, yeah, especially in Seattle. I meant in a menacing way. Oh, there's that too. <laughs> There are places like Seattle and New York where people don't want to be uncool. Right. And so they'll – the best one of these that ever happened was here in San Francisco. I was at a lunch with Adam Savage of Mythbusters and John Hodgman. And the three of us were eating in some very fancy new restaurant that is in the mission in a place that – 25 years ago, you wouldn't have dared walk. Right. And now it's like this place with $80 $80 appetizers. And the entire meal, uh, we are served with like classic sort of San Franciscan, slightly above you. I say a difference. Service, right? Like where the waiter, the waiter or waitress is just sort of like, oh, hello, you know, like here's your thing. Not, I'm not that interested. And then as we were getting ready to leave, the hostess of the restaurant, who was extremely cool, like deeply, deeply chic, asymmetrical bangs. Mm. Like the whole sort of Blade Runner almost aesthetic kind of chased after us and said, excuse me, I'm sorry to bother you. And Adam Savage and John Hodgman both turned around like, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> would you like me to sign? I'm a PC. You know, they, bo- they both just they had they were pulling their let me sign your thing pens the out of their pockets. And and I'm used to in that situation often being the least famous person in a group kind of stepping to the side with a patient smile while the fan interaction happens. And she came up and was like, John, I just wanted to say nice. I'm a huge, huge fan. Well, your fans are loyal fans. Yeah. And, and, and it's funny. I was thinking about this today. I don't comment on your Facebook or Twitter posts unless I really have something to say because they're competitive. Yeah, people are trying to get in there and be Trying funny. to out-funny each other, Yeah. So back to my original question then. Yeah. When you're approached to write a book, they take all this. What do they want? So what do they what, expect from you? So what sells? Here's what happens, right? The, the book agents, um, some of them, some no small number of them are listening to my podcast. Mm-hmm. And so over the years, I've gotten solicited a few times like, hey, I work for Simon & Schuster as an editor, not as an agent, but as an editor. Have you ever thought about writing a book? We'd love to see it. And I write back and go, that's sweet of you. Um, I have a couple of things I've tried to write. Uh, Would you like to see them? And oh, yes, absolutely. And then I send it and it's sort of like, oh, interesting, (laughs) interdasting. 
Does it ever... I've always found a huge gap between your public persona and the guy who's writing the songs. The mm. songs are often heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I'm not funny in my music. Yeah. And I'm not political. It's all extremely personal, emotion-based stuff. I don't have any... Um, my songwriting personality is not my personality. It's a it's a slice of me that feels hurt. But that's not your writing personality? No, my writing personality is the one that you hear here. It's okay. sort of candid and tries to be uh tries to be honest and self-reflective as much as possible. Um and looking for the looking for the humor in the absurd like truth about us all, mm-hmm. right? Like here we are, mm-hmm. and how much better is it going to get than this? This is about it, but and yet somehow it's still not enough. Weird. <laughs> uh, and so the so the stuff I've sent off to agents has been. I got. I started writing a book about that walk, and I got really married to it and really invested in it as a thing that I I wrote 450 pages of this thing. And this was 20 years ago? Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was uh, again, supposed to be the, the, the throat clearing at the beginning of my writer's life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never was able to tie it all up uh, because of a lot of like, problems that I have as a human being. Or it's like my memoir that I wrote that agents said, oh, it's 100,000 really funny words looking for a book. And and people have said about this, like, wonderful, wonderful set of notes for a book. Right. And Cocktail I, conversation. Yeah, and I'm like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And I, uh, my, uh, my advisor at the University of Washington uh, was shepherding me through this process and then got a fatal – disease that gave him a couple of months to live. And I was at the hospital with him and he held my hand and said, do not use this book as a thing in between you and the future. Like, get it out. It doesn't have to be perfect. Have it be done. Do not let it stand in your way. And I said, I refuse your deathbed request. I want this to be a lodestone around my neck that, that so tortures he, me for two decades. So he was saying, don't make this your albatross. Don't only work on this thing forever. Yeah. Become that guy. Yeah. You could have been that guy. You could have been an academic who never finished that book. And in a way I am. They because whispered. Because I still, ins- I still am like, I insist on this book. Well, there's definitely an alternate universe where you're a classics professor. There is, and I and I long for it, but then I spend one second thinking about politics at a university, and I'm like, no, True. thank you. Actually, not classics. More like World War II history. <laughs> I, I, I aspire to – so anyway, one of my podcasts is going to be about uh, a couple of other people and I are watching old war movies and talking about them both as movies and as historical documents, both of the of – the, Events depicted in the movie and also of the time that they were made. That's pretty heady. So all of those World War II movies that were made in the late 50s, early 60s are all allegories of, you know, like... I just, I'm sorry, I just flashed on laying in a sleeping bag out in the deck in a fort watching Tora, Tora, Tora on a 12-inch Sony TV. <laughs> so wonderful. Oh. I remember my dad took me to see Midway, and uh, and it it had more effect on me, I think, than the entire fourth grade. <laughs> but so so there is so several 
agents and editors have approached me over the years listening to the podcast because they listen to it and hear... And you're talking about the one with Merlin, Roderick on the line. Yeah. They hear stories that sound to them like books. Yeah. And if you look at John Hodgman's latest book, Vacation Land, that just came out, it is essentially a, a transcript of a live two-hour one-man show that he toured for the last couple of years. And that uh, two-hour two show was compiled from uh, excerpts of a show that he did once a week in New York, which was um, called Secret Society. It was an hour-long show that he charged $5 for at the Union Hall. And it was just a way that he set up to jog his mm-hmm. mind. Every week, we're all going to meet here for an hour. There's only 100 tickets and... I'm just going to talk about whatever. and So he, he did that off the cuff and then later shaped it into kind of a memoir type of thing? So he wasn't able to do it off the cuff, but every week what it did was it forced him to come up with a show. Mm-hmm. And that hour-long show he populated with a lot of rituals at the beginning and the end, which were the same every week. Like they all had a chant. They all drank from a chalice. There was a candle lit. There was a lot of – it was supposed to be fun. That guy's pretty – Smart. He's very smart. So all he had to do was come up with like 20 minutes of material, and he did work on it and write it, more or less. But it was like, what did I do this week? What weird thing happened to me this week? Mm -hmm. What happened over the summer? And over the course of a year of doing that, he collected stuff that followed a theme and produced then a a two-hour-long monologue, sort of Spalding Gray style. Mm -hmm. Uh, about what it was like to be a middle-aged guy who was struggling with what had what seemed like a life-changing amount of success that then petered out, and now he's kind of back. Like, what do I do with my life? Hmm. And then he turned it into a book, right? And now that book is also out there selling. And so people were listening to my shows and contacting me, like, "You're basically a writer by any other name. All we have to do—that's what I've always thought. Yeah, is just like get your stories into a book instead of just them in this ephemeral sort of storytelling right. podcasting thing." One of those agents was persistent, and persistent in a way that. He never took my lack of replies personally. Mm-hmm. He would write me every couple of months, hi, still here, still a fan. I was listening to your show last week, thought about this. Anyway, what about doing a book together? Still interested? Bye. And sometimes I would reply and say, oh, yeah. And sometimes I wouldn't. It's nice to have that option on the table. It is, but I'm, you know, I'm very uh, distracted. I have a lot of things going on. I have a lot of trouble completing things, and I also, I, 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 I hate to disappoint people, and I feel like I'm always disappointing people. So, at first, I was very excited. Then I got, then I felt like I was disappointing him already. Then I felt like this is probably better if I don't do this right now. Then it was back to, you know what I really want to do is put out that book about my walk, on and on and on. And he just was steadfast. Like, I like you. I want to work with you. Whatever you want to do. He wanted to get in the business of John Roderick. Right. And finally, and then he was sending, you know, he said, all you have to do is sign this contract. And I was like, well, I need to listen to, I need to talk to some people about this contract. And I got to run it by Ken Jennings. Gotta, that's right. 
And then I realized just recently um, a lot of the relationships, a lot of the most productive relationships I've had in my life have been uh, the result of saying yes to someone who is persistent. Uh, the only reason I have that podcast with Merlin is that he was persistent and I ended up saying yes, even though I had a lot of reservations. turns out those reservations were uh, not, they were about nothing, right? I mean, I'm worried about whether or not this is a fair contract about how it's going to disburse imaginary money mm-hmm. that results from an imaginary successful book that is, you know, like, what am I... What am I guarding? I'm guarding my future riches. Right. And the easy way to make sure it doesn't happen. You know, if you don't sign it, it guarantee you won't happen. Right. So what, what this uh, editor showed me over time was this, he's not just um, I, he's not just calling 80 people a week saying, hey, you know, he's not a real estate agent trying to get you to buy a new condo. He believes in me and he's listening to me and he's... He has not lost faith. And and the thing that pushed me over the line was he said at one point, look, I am a fan, but I'm also a book agent. I'm not like a vanity press person <laughs> who wants you to do this book because I think the world needs to hear it. This is my job. I think I can make money from you writing a book. And I was like, oh, that – uh, explicitly naked self-interest really appeals to me <laughs> because that implies that I would make money right. from it. He so, expects success. Yeah. So I finally said, okay, I'll sign, I'll sign with you. Uh, and I don't care uh, about any of the other stuff. I don't care if you're a star in your business or, or if you're universally reviled in your business. You have been the one that's stuck, that's chased me. And that's no small thing. And now the question is what uh, – I tried at one point to fan source a, a huge transcription project of my shows. Oh, boy. Because there are a lot of fans out there that kind of keep fan sites about it, databases about the shows. And I said, look, you guys are all sitting out there just sitting around. Well, you're probably just going to the movies or playing video games. Why don't every night somebody sit down and try and bite off like transcribing half of a show? After a time, we'll have this huge, this omnibus. Well, it's, it, I was not successful in activating an army of that surprises me. 200 Manchurian candidates. <laughs> what I got was about 30 transcripts from, uh, from 300 plus shows. Yeah. Uh, because everybody wanted to transcribe the show that they liked the best. Transcribing sucks. It's I really hard. It's really hard. And uh, I had one fan, uh, who, delightful young woman, who had done some time as a transcriber for mm-hmm. doctors, you know, talking into their dictaphones. And so she had a setup at home where she could the do little it. pedals. Yeah. And she did a whole little handful of them. Uh but so I sent this agent my book about my walk across Europe. And he said, again, kind of in the family of perfect is the enemy of good, he said, I think this is a great book. And it's not a question of how do we spend five more years polishing this 
to be a you know to be as uh, sharp a diamond as it can be. Mm-hmm. It's more a question of let's have this book be what it is and and do a good job on on turning it into as good a version of it as as we can. Right, because from his point of view, you've told some of those stories on this podcast. It's listened to by I don't know how many thousands of people. You've already got the, what forty thousand Twitter followers. You're a known you're a known entity, and if this book came in even half readable, you're good to go. That's his idea. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, I, I was talking to some people at like, Lidquake. No, <laughs> well, right, and and you know, and, and it's the it's the curse of our generation. Where part of the reason I didn't start writing at a much younger age was that I thought my responsibility was to reinvent the American novel. Huh. Right to beat everybody. I get over that pretty quick. Right, and just make the like make this. Uh, this thing that no one had ever seen before that shocked the world. I remember in grad school having a conversation with someone. We It was like an aside at a party. We didn't want others to hear it. And we're like, I don't think I write experimental fiction. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> terrifying. I know. Right? And that was one of the things I learned with my band. Like, the Long Winters are a really good rock band. We did not reinvent rock music. There are things about us that are interesting and complex. We're not just we, – we don't sound like anybody else. But we also didn't turn the music, turn, not just the music business, we didn't turn music on its head. It's like we have some guitars and basses. Do you even want to do that? Do you want to be Nick Drake? Well, I don't want to die like Nick the Drake. The people who turn music on their head don't sell records. Well, and I was talking to somebody at Lidquake last night uh, who was who's a poet and in the poetry world. Mm-hmm. They were talking about like, oh, I have a new book coming out and uh, it's coming out next year and, you know, I'm gearing up for that. And I was like, that's exciting. You know, what do you do? Oh, we, you know, I do a bunch of readings and book, uh, like, you know, explaining the whole process leading up to releasing a book. And I said, boy, that's really going to be thrilling. Like, congratulations. And they said, well, you know, it's not like I'm going to be like some big shot and sell like right. 10,000 copies. And I was like, Oh, surprise. What now? And she was like, yeah, I mean, you know, it's like every once in a while, some book comes out and sells 10, even 20,000 copies and just, you know, yep. shakes the world. And I was like, wow. Yeah, that's the other thing I didn't know before joining the Grotto. The average nonfiction book sells 200 copies in its first year. Wow. So anyway, this agent does, he's making the same calculation you are, which is like if 10% of my following across multiple platforms buys this book that is that they've been a lot of them waiting for mm-hmm. um, we're already like selling a good number yeah, of books. I mean, you have a you have an in-place platform that first-time writers dream of yeah I mean, that's why I started a podcast because I wanted a platform yeah and also I like doing it but well and podcasting is I I think uh, I think a lasting form. Right, it, I think so. For for as low tech as it is, and for um, uh, when podcasting first started, uh, there was a lot of eye rolling about it because the assumption was that what we really wanted was a, a like completely immersive media experiences where we were hearing, seeing, mm. feeling, and tasting the whole experience. And we were going to put gloves on and be able to put our fingers right into Larry Rosen's belly button lint. Ugh. And that was the experience we were looking for. And it turns out what we really like is to listen to someone in our headphones while we're doing something else. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there's still a lot of confusion that it's not radio. You know, when we started this one, there was some confusion over what's the format. I mean, it's like it's like NPR, like, you know, 
it's like NPR's uh, interview series. Like, no, no, we're going to talk a lot too. Yeah. Um, it isn't radio. It's a it's its own weird thing. Yeah, and on radio you can't have someone come in and sit there for an hour and talk to you. Right, and and what's what is so different about podcasting is that it's I, I feel like one of the last places where people two three almost never more than four, and the more people you get, kind of the worse it is. Agreed. But people will sit and work on something, chew on an idea, mm-hmm. tease it out, not know the answer. Right. You know, like, is it good for the Jews? We don't know. We're, <laughs> we're not, we're we're not going week. straight in with an answer already. Or like on this podcast, you came here and I didn't know you had a book contract. Right. It, right. Changed, it changed the whole direction of where I was going to go. So, so two days ago, I was on an airplane working on my prospectus on my proposal, <laughs> proposal. <laughs> and and really going through and and gutting it and doing yeah. that horrible thing where you're like that is such a great line that's such a beautiful thing such a but, beautiful paragraph and i have to kill it but back to my original question then where did you learn how to write a, a, a almost said prospectus <laughs> a proposal i'm learning to yeah um i'm learning to do it because you know, I wrote my first band bios, which at the time. Are you totally jealous that I have water? I am, yeah, yeah but I'll survive. <laughs> uh, at the time, bef- uh, my first records came out sort of pre big internet. Right. And you still, as a record reviewer, would get a package in the mail with a CD and a piece of paper that said, this band is. Yeah, is I, next. I was that record reviewer. Right. And my band bios, I tried to say, like, this band is really interesting. And, um, you know, and, and I st- my first bio was like, whether he was waking up with two broken hands or, you know, like, living the life of luxury on the Riviera. Those are really touchy things to do. Because I can always tell when people are trying yeah. to be super funny. And, I, and they're awful. <laughs> I wish I had just said the Long Winters are <laughs> rock band from Seattle, yeah. and uh, the guy is a guy. You throw a little ping, you know, just a little ping in there. Menomina had a great, uh, a great bio they sent out one time, which was a whole band bio that then had been redacted like a government oh, just document like a, with, li- with lines through. Yeah, it. with lines through everything, and all that was left was four words that was like Menomina. Is a, band. Uh, is a band or something like that. I'll tell you what. Worst interview I ever did was a phone interview with Man or Astro Man. Do you remember oh, them? Of course I did. They wouldn't admit they were from Earth. Oh, they really oh, had their thing. So they were so stuck on their idea. Uh, I, I, I escaped. Whatever. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How come you sound like you're from Georgia? <laughs> <laughs> that was a drag. Well, you know what, John? We are actually out of time. Uh, for two reasons, because mm. I know you need you have a plane to catch. And oh no, my plane got delayed because oh, your city's uh, on fire. We so can keep going yeah. then. Well, second reason is if we stay in here much longer, we're both going to die. It's hot in here. Yeah, so I'll get you out of here. Hey, but before we wrap up, um, share with my listeners, our listeners. Sorry, Bridget, you're still here in spirit. Your platforms, how people can find you, what you do. I know you have a lot. Just go down the list. Now. Well, so, yeah, my Twitter is uh, at John Roderick. I stopped going on Twitter 
I used to be someone who really loved it. Yeah, there. you were there a lot. And I thought it was a wonderful place. You know, the, I knew a lot That's of right. smart people there and funny people it's there. It's not a wonderful place. No, it isn't. We, we spent years just trying to make each other laugh and trying to entertain people and be great. I'm still doing it. Uh, but so few people are now, oh. and it's just a lot of people preaching to the choir, a lot of people lecturing one another about things. Here's my question that I ask all the time. Everyone says that these terrible things have come to light because of Twitter and because of the comment section. Don't you think people always felt this way and now they have a place to say it? Everybody knew it. It was just wasn't it – was, you weren't rewarded for being upset. Right. And being upset was a thing that you tried to oh, yeah. resolve. I learned this a horrible way after uh, the 2016 NBA Finals. I'm a big Golden State Warriors fan, mm-hmm. and I felt that they had gotten jobs. So I went on Twitter and just wrote the most horrible things. And then I went next time I checked my Twitter, like, 15 likes. Yeah. Yeah, tell them. Yeah, they're so was, mad. And the power you feel like, yeah. Well, uh, do you know who Michael Ian Black is, the comedian? Yes. Michael Ian Black is a wonderful, wonderful soul. Uh, he's a liberal person mm-hmm. right like he's not a he's not a crazy person he gets a little dicey on twitter but so he got into this mode of combating uh people that were that he thought were like uh trump cranks right and that brought more trolls out and he got more and more engaged in this project of fighting the good fight and as time has gone on it's ruined his Twitter. Yes. But it's also visibly destroying him. And the last time I saw him, I was like, hey, man, you know, this, how's it going? And he said, I, I'm, you know, I get four hours of sleep a night. I'm neglecting my responsibilities in my life. But I can't stop because if I stop, then they win. They win. And I felt that, that saddest story. It's it's terrible, and and he's he is a funny, funny, funny yeah. man, and a delightful guy. But he has he decided that his Twitter account was this platform where he was going to wage virtual war. He's going to had a flaming sword, and he was going to kill all these dragons. It was happening to me. I was on there, um, just raging, and I realized I don't want it. it it's not helping me. It's not helping anyone else. There's no one on my Twitter, in my whole Twitter universe, that's sitting there going, what do I think about this? I wish somebody would yell at me about it. (laughs) Um, And the sort of rise of the Bernie faction and having people come at me from the left telling me that I was the problem because I didn't understand that free health care and free college and free food was a universal right that... And by asking who was going to pay for it, I was basically a Nazi sympathizer. That whole thing just pushed me right out the door. Right, because what's a Nazi? Someone who disagrees with me. Well, or yeah, or, or what they were saying was, if you sympathize with someone who is bad, then by sympathizing with them, you are a sympathizer. Right. And it's like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. You don't, those are not what those words. That's not a. You, hey, man, you only got 140 characters. Right. Got to be able to read in. So did you go to Instagram instead? So then I went to Instagram, which I found to be like. At, Same handle? A, a, at John Roderick See what on I'm Instagram. Doing here? That's right. And they were. And that was a very supportive environment. Uh, people were just trying to make each other laugh. Yeah. 
And then it creeped in. People started screenshotting their Twitter arguments <laughs> and putting them on Instagram Ugh. or screenshotting things from the Internet. Like, look at this injustice that we yep. need to uh, that I want to try and accrue 40 comments in support of my uh, like exclamation about this injustice that we all have the same Internet. We all have, we've all read about it. We don't this. Why is this our suddenly our platform where we're where we're validating one another's. Righteousness, and so Instagram started to become uh, a drag, and Facebook always has been a drag. Mm-hmm. I'm also John Roderick there. I'm John Roderick all these places. What the problem is is I don't know exactly how to engage with social media anymore. That isn't um, where it isn't like openly a drag and providing me little to nothing. I hear you, and I'll talk more about that off. Mike. Yeah. Um, and then I have the following podcast. Yes. Go down the list of podcasts. Roderick on the Line with Merlin Mann, where we talk about – we're two middle-aged white guys talking about nothing. Uh, at the time that that podcast started, that was not yet a hilarious trope. It was already a thing. Another podcast? Two white guys talking about nothing? And kind of a confession, kind of a blueprint for is it good for the Jews? Right, so I right. want to be like these guys. And there were a lot of podcasts that came as a result of people listening to Roderick on the line and saying, whatever that dynamic is, that we want to try and capture it. Uh, between two friends that know a lot about a lot of things, that are trying to make one another laugh, but also we don't have another place to talk about things that are on our minds, and mm-hmm. so here it is. Raccoons, toothbrushes. Right. One of the other podcasts that wanted to be like that uh, was a guy named Dan Benjamin who had a podcast with Merlin Mann already that was very successful called Back to Work. Mm-hmm. Dan said, I really like your podcast with John Roderick, Merlin. Why don't I have one like that? And then he contacted me and said, I just want to start a podcast with you because I want one. <laughs> and so we started a podcast called Roadwork. Okay, Roadwork. Which was initially just Dan wanting his own Roderick on the line. But what road, uh, road work became was Merlin doesn't like to talk about sex, politics, or religion. Oh, I should have a podcast with Merlin. Right. He doesn't like any one of those three, and, and he will immediately try and redirect if those topics come up. Mm-hmm. Dan said, I, will, I don't mind talking about sex, politics, or religion. Why don't you come over here and talk about those things? And so road work became much more uh, – it's longer form sort of ruminating about – uh, about human stuff mm-hmm. and less like, what did I do today? I don't know. What about the Beatles? <laughs> and more like, uh, what is it all? It's two white guys talking about nothing, but like, what am, what am I doing? What are we doing? And then the two new podcasts, one of them is called Friendly Fire. That's the war, the war movie one? That's right. That's me and the two guys who have the successful podcast called Greatest Gen about uh, Star Trek. Oh, boy. They have a Star Trek podcast that got very successful because a lot of people like talking about Star Trek, especially the greatest or, uh, next generation Star Trek. A lot of the generation. coolest people like talking about Star Trek. They really do. Uh-huh. And so their greatest gen podcast became very popular. And then they wanted to start one with me where we talk about old war movies. So these guys just um, just pitch you? Yeah. Huh. And it's. It's great. You sit, you sit, uh, and and people say, "What about the podcast with you?" And I go, "Yeah, no." But then when somebody has a good idea, like Friendly Fire, we we watch any movie that is about a war. You do it in the same room? No, it's again. You don't remote. do any of these in the same room, do you? 
the last podcast, the newest one, Ken Jennings, one. Omnibus with Ken Jennings. Ken said, I've never done, I've never talked into a microphone. But I've demonstrated to the world that I know everything. I know everything. But I stood there talking to Alex Trebek. And he doesn't I, know everything, but pretend. He does pretend. He has notes. But Ken said, I want to do it in person. So I built a podcast studio, very similar to this one you have here, in my house. And every He's a Seattle guy? Yeah, Ken's in Seattle. Every Wednesday, he drives out to my house, and we sit with our notes and so Friendly Fire is the first one that requires any work on my part, and that work is I have to watch a movie. Uh-huh. Uh, and every week I have to watch a movie, and then it's a lot of work. we sit down uh, on our phones, and it's like, what did you think of that movie? And then I, I, I'm, a, I'm the one of the three of us that can say, this is a McCarthy you're the one with the, with the body of knowledge? Yeah, about that stuff. And, and they're both filmmakers, so they're like... They are, they're talking about the film as a film. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about it as a historical document. With Ken, we're actually, you know, Ken knows a lot of stuff and likes to talk about a lot of obscure facts. I also like that. But because he's very smart, I need to really be on my game. Are you going to come in with a topic every week? So we're doing two shows a week. One of them, he brings the topic. One of them, I bring the topic. And the topics are all uh, across the broad spectrum of human experience, but largely in the category of little known or poorly understood things about the world. So the first two episodes we did, Ken described the eccentric millionaire who introduced the starling into Central Park in New York City. Okay. Uh, because he wanted to introduce – he thought that Central Park should have every bird that appears in Shakespeare. And so he imported 40 starlings from the UK, introduced them into Central Park. There are now 300 million starlings in the United States or more, uh, all the result of this one eccentric – It's a little uh, Malcolm gladwell Yeah, it is. Uh, my first episode was on the defenestrations of Prague – and Ken said, defenestrations of Prague? And I said, yes. We talk about the defenestration of Prague, which educated people have heard of but don't know exactly what it is about. But there were actually three, which hardly anybody knows about. I didn't know. The Czech people uh, really sort of pioneered and almost exclusively used throwing someone out a window as a political <laughs> gesture. So it happened three times in Czech history, three, like, Seminal moments, one of them produced the Thirty Years' War, uh, these three times that, the, that in protest, some group of, of uh, Czech politicians threw another group out the window, uh, out of a tall window. Uh, it turned out Ken has a family connection to a defenestration because Ken's, uh, Ken is a, a Mormon and his family were Mormons all the way back. And Joseph Smith was actually thrown slash jumped slash slash shot out of the window of a jailhouse. Yeah, I knew that. And Ken's great-great-great-grandfather was in the room. Oh, way. In the room, one of the people that did not get shot. That's crazy. Okay, so you got four podcasts. Omnibus with Ken Jennings. Omnibus. Friendly Fire with Ben Harrison and Adam Pranica. Roadwork. Roadwork with Dan Benjamin. And the mother of them all. Roderick on the line with Merlin Mann. You got the... So... 
you've signed the contract, you've delivered something. To my book agent in New York. That's right. Okay. Uh, and um, and uh, the, the agency is called Fisher Harbage. In New York City, and they, uh, they, you know, it's mostly nonfiction, but they do a lot of stuff. Any time left for music? So I have three albums in development. Oh, are they Long Winters albums? One I noticed them, the uh, Trump thing you did was kind of folky. It was folky. One of them is a full Long Winters rock album. One of them is a uh, a strange folky, possibly solo record. And one of them is a kind of electronic rock really? record. And the kind three of kind of LCD sound system. A little bit, yeah. yeah. The guy's a genius. And the three are like mm, all at about the same stage of development, which is like seventy five percent. You still have a record contract with Barsuk? I do, uh, but the music business has changed so much. That is true. In the last ten years, that they the, the that label has moved largely into managing mm. young bands. And it's unclear whether it would benefit me to have a label versus just put it out. Put it out. Touring? Touring is harder for me now that I have a daughter right. and that I'm almost 50. But I'm also in a position where I can fly places and play and do three shows and then fly home, mm-hmm. which always seemed crazy to me when I was younger because why would you just throw everything in a van and drive right. around? Rock for, and roll. Yeah, for two months. But that will destroy a person, uh, that kind of touring. It's just so, so, so hard. Uh, but I could now fly to New York and play New York, Philly, Boston, uh, D.C., and fly home. Did you put the old Long Winters band back together? The old Long Winters band is a lot of different bands. Yeah. Right? We had three different drummers and, and probably seven other people that orbited in and out. Uh, and so it's it's not that hard to put a long winters together. I think Sean's kind of the key. Sean and Sean Sean wants to do it and loves to do it. Um, and he's also like, you know, he requires a certain amount of care and feeding. <laughs> but uh, but he does. So to the listener, Sean is the lead singer of Harvey Danger, who was also a member of the Long Winters. The the uh, on stage patter. Priceless. Yeah, yeah, we have a good time up there, but it, it does have to, you know, we do. It does have to be profitable, right, to, in order to make yeah. that happen. Well, that wraps it up for us. But first, let me tell you about me. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, even after we just those bad mouth Twitter at that Larry Rosen. Uh, Instagram, same thing. Uh, my other podcast is is it good for the Jews? Uh, world www.isitgoodforthejews.com as for us here uh, you can follow us at the grotto pod on twitter you can send us emails at grottopod at gmail.com bridget is b quinterist i am that larry rosen did i already say that yeah I think you did, I did. You did shoot yeah. it's okay uh, and i'm going to go out with bridget's little thing that she always says at the end and that is for everyone out there listening remember to read write and just keep working mm-hmm.